Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines or at least something very, very close to it. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by the entire crew. We are all here. We have Natasha Mascarenas, who is here, but is also there. Natasha, where are you and why? I am in San Diego for ASU GSV. I forgot my podcast mic, so that's why I sound the way I do. But it's been really cool meeting equity listeners in the wild. What is ASUG? That thing, What what is it? It is like the EdTech conference for people who are in the sector, investors, and especially after the pandemic, I feel like it was a really cool opportunity to go. So we've been testing and distancing and masking and so far so good. All right, well, please stay safe, but we're glad that you're here. We also can herald the return of the prodigal son. Danny Crichton is back from vacation. I hear he knocked over several ice cream stands in the meantime, but Danny, welcome back. And this is a great episode to have you on. Thank you. I think I had at least 30 or 40 scoops of ice cream last week during my staycation. As I was telling Alex, while we do talk about the numbers behind the headlines, one of the tricks to the headlines, if you don't have numbers, they don't affect you, similar to weight. Yes, Danny, Danny has decided that he's not going to weigh himself after his ice cream binge. I support that. Which I think is just self-care. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so what are we talking about today? Today is our Wednesday show, so we're picking a theme, and we are going to focus down on the question that has been bubbling around the startup Twitter VC fintech world about the future of venture capital. Now, if you are a reader of the publication, The Information, you may have seen an essay by Sam Lesson. Sam Lesson is, um, I'm just going to say tech person, close enough. Also the partner of Jessica Lesson, who runs The Information, and he writes there occasionally. And he wrote a piece digging into kind of what he thought of as the end of venture capital as we know it. And now Danny is going to explain to us his argument. I think, you know, to summarize, it's basically there's a transformation over the last decade from an artisan-based field of, you know, smart people, mostly men in a room making decisions on individual startups to a much more, I guess you would say, risk-averse capital structure where people are much more process-oriented, they're focused on growth, focused on SaaS and enterprise, and there's just this torrent of money going into the field that's upending kind of the old notions of what we think of venture capital today. Yeah, and this actually plays into kind of all the spaces that we talk about. I mean, Natasha, thinking about EdTech three years ago, it was a venture capital wasteland, but now it sounds much like there's tons of capital. So just picking that sector... Is, is is the stuff you talk about in ed tech mostly venture capital or are you seeing come to these later stage funds also arrive and, and shake things up? I was just talking about how SoftBank has been showing up more and more in ed tech deals. You would see them maybe make one bet and that's like their ed tech bet. And we just saw them do class and I think RIID back to back. And so we're definitely seeing bigger funds do more, even in sectors that haven't been touched traditionally. And I think it's partially because the market looks so hot. It's hard to be a company that's trending downwards if you're in software, which obviously is part of Lesson's argument. Yeah. And the, and the argument for if you're not familiar with SaaS is that, you know, back in the day, venture investors were taking adventurous bets. They were making high risk, high reward bets, and they charged a lot of money for their capital because they had to have strong payouts from their winners and expected a lot of their companies to fail. But, you know, Danny, in the modern software world with public infrastructure and higher level programming languages, it seems like the risk in building at least some startups has really just declined to the point in which kind of more boring money can supplant what VC does or did. I think that's exactly right. And look, it's important to separate out the term high risk mean, because there are really multiple risks when we invest in a startup. You have team risk, the founders of the company, are they going to build up? You have hiring risk, can they hire the right folks to join the team? Product risk, you know, marketing risk or market risk, sales and business risk. 
And I think one of the things that you've seen over the last 10 years is most of those risks have just declined for the vast majority of startups. Business model risk. Back in the day, people invented business models. You have to remember when Google went public. I mean, imagine this world, right? When Google went to IPO, it was still figuring out a business model. (laughs) We didn't know it was going to succeed. You look at Facebook. They went public. They hadn't fully reached the apotheosis of mobile advertising that they did at the time. There was real concern in 2011 when the company IPO'd. They would not be able, or 2012, they would not be able to actually build revenues on mobile. And then Instagram and everyone proved them sort of wrong. I think what you see today is across the board, risk has declined in business model because you're reusing SaaS again and again across companies. So we know what that looks like. Financing risk has gone away because we know how growth finance companies look like. And then even on team risk, you can fix for that, right? You can hire consultants. You can have more involved board members. You can just replace the founders entirely. And so for, uh, you know, across the board, the answer is, is like, these aren't as risky as they used to be. And I'll add the average check going into a YC founder when they join YC has also grown over time. And that's a really, I think, awesome thing to see, even though people have their own sides on if it should be easier and should you have more capital. Seeing like a YC check increase over time too, to me, means that we're seeing like this prime accelerator increasing its check. They want it to be easy as well. So the way this was described to me by a friend of mine was that there's three kind of categories of risk. Back to Danny's point, there's market risk, execution risk, and tech risk. And tech risk has gone to effectively zero in the software world. I mean, when's the last time a startup said, ah, we failed. We couldn't build our software. I mean, I just haven't heard it. Market risk, as Danny said, kind of gone away. TAM is huge for software. I learned this by thinking that there were too many OKR-focused startups, and I was wrong. And then execution risk is all the other stuff Danny said, you know, team, marketing, and so forth. And that's still there, but certainly decreased given, you know, people expect things. So it's changed. Who can put money to work? And Danny, the idea is that VCs will get supplanted. Well, and Sam Lesson, I mean, his, his point was is that basically the base of investors who invest in the start kinds of companies we've been talking about is just changing, right? So we talk about Tiger Global. They're investing basically only in SaaS companies. They're not on the edge of civilization. They're not on the edge of science. They're just doing par for the course, high valuations, but willing to get in early and willing to be super aggressive to do it. He believes that that means that traditional VCs who still want to be in the game, they're going to move to those high risk projects, those ones with technical risk on the edge of science you know, think biotech, think, you know, next generation genomics, et cetera. I actually am a little skeptical on this. And this is where I felt like the last step in his argument was sort of flawed. Because to my mind, if you look at traditional venture capital firms, it was the returns of the low risk, high reward startups that subsidized the value that was, you know, in the high risk, high reward category. Or as a partner once put it to me, you do the enterprise plays to get to a 2x fund and you do the consumer and the the hardcore technical stuff to get to a 2x to you know 10x fund if all of those projects fail which actually is not uncommon even across 30 or 40 projects when you're doing highly risky things you still have that 2x space to make sure you can raise a fund from LPs and they don't get upset. Now, Natasha, you've been tracking the early stage market more closely than I have been so I, I want to ask you about this because in, in my world the late stage world the Tigers, the Vision Fund 2s, you know, they've had enormous impact. Is the mix of VCs and investors that you see at the earlier stages changing as much as we might expect given Sam Lesson's thesis? I think it's changing. I also think that the funds that I've talked to, Turner Novak, for example, who recently launched Banana Capital, he launched pretty explicitly saying that he is going to, as of recently by 2022, start also investing in the public markets as part of his fund. I don't see him just staying in the pre-seed early stage. So I think we're seeing both sides combine with each other. Venture capital may be over as we know it in this very specific definition, but I don't think it's like the black and white perspective of it really makes that much sense. 
Yeah, and, and Sam, to his to his credit, does point out that his argument works less in the early stages, works more in the later stages, and and seems to be, I think, pretty tied to SaaS or, or maybe you know API delivered startups. Anything software ish that's been kind of sorted out, and, and frankly, I think that's pretty reasonable because the amount of money that VCs made betting on successful growing Series B plus software startups was crazy. I mean, they were making a killing from these kind of almost de-risked bets, getting paid like they were backing, you know, seed stage biotech when they were really backing kind of like non-risky software companies. And so to me, let's get the cost of capital lower there. But like selection risk is still there, Danny. You can still pick, you know, a bunch of crappy software companies, even if you are, you know, in a different market. I think, you know, you can certainly do selection risk. I, I don't want to revise history. There were a lot of bets that were made that seem so obvious today. Instacart being one of them. Benchling is another one that comes to mind. I, re I remember Benchling. Benchling's now, I want to say it's a multi-unicorn. Um, Natasha, I, you might have covered it or, or someone here, but Benchling is focused on basically integrations and software for labs. So you think pharma, biolabs to integrate all it, those it. different scientific instruments. And, and Sajay, the CEO, I, met, I must have met 10 years ago right? Like nine, 10 years ago, he was just getting started thinking about these sorts of things. And, and to be honest, like it was an incredibly hard to believe idea that would ever succeed. You know, there are thousands of scientific instruments, all of whom have their own protocols and APIs. There's no way to integrate all these together. No one wants to cooperate with you. Similar to the clever story in school, similar to Plaid and FinTech. It was one of these integration plays. And the reality is it actually took five, seven years before it actually started to hit its stride. That is the risk. Now, today, because we have those sorts of tools in place, you have Plaid in place, you have Clever in place, a lot of that risk has gone away. Markets are now much more willing to adopt software. But, you know, this first generation of companies, this is the software eating the world decade, if you will, to, to borrow the <laughs> overused phrase. But the reality is, is a lot of places did not use software. It was still paper-based. And one of the classic lines I always used is, if you're looking around in 2015 and people are still using paper, you should probably ask either why or like what will ever change these people's minds well, the answer is, in some cases, they did change their mind. And it just took a really, really long time to get into the late adopter cycle on that adoption curve. All that makes pretty good sense to me, and especially, I think, in the last 18 months, the kind of accelerated digital transformation we've talked about so much in the wake of the pandemic has only added fuel to this particular fire. But I want to talk about outliers for a minute, because, Danny, you know, you can put a bunch of money into software companies and see them do fine, or you can put money into the next Slack and do great. And to me, like the tiger approach seems to be much more spreading money around versus making super targeted bets. And so to me, like if I was an LP, I would probably want to put my capital into maybe a fund that has a bit more of a target or a thesis or something that I can kind of like, you know, better believe in versus like the index fund of mid-stage plus SaaS to generate, you know, above market returns. Because if capital is de-risked and, you know, the cost of it goes down, doesn't that mean more blase returns for people investing in software? It makes me think a lot about how like firms are increasingly investing in competitive companies because everything is kind of becoming competitive with each other as they get older and get better funding, especially in fintech. I, I, I cover a lot of VC deals still, you know, as best I can. At least, you know, from what I see, there is more crossover money and more non-traditional money in there, but it's not the majority of what I see, you know? So today, like it, it feels like even though we've seen record amounts of capital flow into the startup world from other sources, it's still by far, you know, the minority of, of stuff outside of super mega deals, you know, 150 million plus, those are often led by whomever, but those aren't really startup deals anyways. Those are essentially just pre-IPO investments because companies are lazy and don't go public anymore. When you think about back, you know, Google, all the early dot-com companies, they used to go to IPO really fast, right? Yeah. And then we had this period in which IPOs took 12 to 13 years post 
the formation of a company. Now we're seeing it go the other direction where they might still be private, but it's the public investors who are showing up on that cap table. And as far as I'm concerned, they're essentially public companies, even if they're yes. not registered as such under the SEC. Yeah, and so the venture capital world really, yeah, it doesn't hasn't changed as much as people like to think. Given if you if you if you cut off that part of it, it looks much more similar than it used to. To me, it's like super ironic how um, I think Eric Wu from a former Angelist put it like as capital becomes a commodity for VC, it also becomes the reason that VC is getting threatened and has to deal with these new methods of how companies can survive and thrive. And so I, my question, I guess, for both of you is like, do services, do we have like a whole new conversation about services on VC firms? Or like, what does this really mean for like those solo GPs that are now trying to get in if capital is no longer like the way they really do it? I actually think it's really hard. I, I, yeah, I'm quite skeptical on a lot of these funds. I do believe there's a little bit of artisanship, you know, prior to product market fit. But even in software, I mean, if you're doing anything in the enterprise today, I just don't know how an early stage investor in any way accelerates your performance. I've talked to a lot of founders on this subject. Some will say that their investors, you know, help with hiring or, or particularly closing on hiring is a big one. It's not even so, so much top of the funnel as closing the funnel off as you get people through it. But like the reality is, is like, you're going to figure out your own customers. You have to build out your own engine. You have to get your own feedback. You have to figure out your own product. VCs don't do this. I am constantly under quite a bit of pressure to come up with any reason why, you know, a particular seed investor is any different from any other. And I think that the proof is in the pudding, which is look at these cap tables. You've got dozens of investors in every single one. Everyone's putting in their tiny little checks. No one has any real investment or real skin in the game on any individual company anymore. And to me, that's the message that is very clear being sent by most, not all, but most seed investors. Well, it's going to be fun to see. I mean, we're going to be able to track this thesis kind of in the market because if we do see, you know, I don't know, traditional venture capital rounds decline in frequency or decline in size or, you know, pivot their focus, we're going to be able to kind of test this. But I do think, though, summarizing kind of what we've gone over so far, yes, VC is changing. No, not everywhere. Less so at the earlier stages and less so in areas where business models are less kind of de-risked. But certainly there's going to be, you know, some impacts in the market. And, you know, Danny, this makes me kind of wonder about where we are in the bubble curve. Because if we're seeing this much late stage money roll into these markets, there is a risk of asset inflation, prices getting ahead of value. So talk to me a little bit about your view on, uh, on where we are in the hype cycle and also where interest rates could come into play. Well, I, I think, look, we're at the top of the hype cycle. We're t you know, the interest rates are the lowest they're ever going to be. I guess they could go negative. There, there is a negative. Germany is entirely negative. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. entirely possible they can keep <laughs> going down. Um, the, the, the floor is not zero. I, I do think, you know, one of the biggest risks for most founders is like, who are you actually getting on your cap table? It hasn't mattered the last five years. When everything goes up, everything's easy. Everyone signs off on paperwork. No one has issues. Boards don't get involved. Everyone's happy. I think the question is, you know, as is uh, a, a truism and a guarantee of a capitalist economy, there will be a recession. There has not really been a recession. There was a technical recession last year because of COVID. That recession has been basically wiped out. We're almost caught up. Employment's sort of the last figure. We've already crossed over on GDP economic growth, employment is almost caught up, but it's not there. I think we're still a couple, two, three million jobs short, yeah, closing we'll the service and tourism and a couple other industries. The, the big question is, is like, obviously there will be a downturn, like inevitably in a capitalist society. So when that happens and there is a reckoning in the startup world, whether a smaller, medium or a large one, what happens then? You know, the old line of when the tide goes out, we'll find out who's naked. I think the equivalent is when the tide goes out, we'll figure out which boards are functional, which VCs are founder friendly and which VCs freak out because we've got a lot of tourists who showed up, people who have never gone through a downturn, people who have never had to go through tough choices 
in building a company and either doubling down or walking away. And I think we're going to find out a lot of information. When that will happen, I have no idea. That's why I'm not completely annoyed by everyone raising follow-on funds at like triple the size from the previous year today, because the EdTech funds that I cover, for example, Reach Capital recently just closed like its biggest fund ever. And sure, the market looks great, but that capital will last them for however much amount of time. And I'm glad to see VC continuing to stay on the offense instead of getting quiet. And maybe that's obvious, but to me, as like an optimist, I also am like, all right, keep raising money until that happens. Because if you guys are the risk takers you say you are, I'm ready to follow you when that happens. Because right now, we definitely, Danny, to your point, are not seeing that kind of risk being taken in the way that it will when there's a recession. Yeah. And everyone looks like a genius when things are only getting more expensive. You know, it's it's just not that hard to have, you know, markups when everyone's paying more for your startup equity. I'm very curious to see where the kind of early, early, early money goes and if there's any change there. Because, you know, thinking about impacts of this new world, the earlier you get, the less figured out things are. And so, you know, Danny, you were talking about seed being the same as everyone else. I disagree a little bit, especially at the pre-seed stage, because all the models and rubrics that we know, you know, I'm just thinking about how much we've talked about CAC to LTV ratios over time and magic numbers and SaaS and all that stuff, you know, pre-seed, you have like a customer, maybe. And so like, you can't, <laughs> I was like, that's already that. a seed company. I think by definition, <laughs> yeah, actually that's probably actually series A these actual days. actual customer, maybe even a series B. Um, no, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I, I do think that there are a couple of pre-seed investors who build out little tribes of folks who help get you started, particularly for first-time founders and others. I just think there's so much money at the angel level, at the pre-seed, people who throw money into all kinds of different things, crowdfunding. I've seen it all. I mean, in some of the companies, you know, I've been covering disasters the last couple of years. It's been amazing to see where the money comes from. It's like randos. I mean, I don't know how it's to, I'm not trying to be uh, besmirch any of the individual people. But you'd be amazed that some of these angels have never written an angel check before. And that's like consistent across multiple companies. They're not like overlapping. They're like, this was my first check. I'm like half the people, it's their first check. Yeah. And, and I think you're just seeing so many people enter the market. And, and a huge part of that is, yes, interest rates are lower. There's less returns on most traditional forms of capital. So stocks, bonds go down the list. There's nowhere else to go and park your money. We just saw today Miami-Dade, the port of Miami, put out, I want to say it was a billion dollars. I'm making 1. that number 4. up. 1.4 billion. See, why do we even know what the Port of Miami is doing? I don't know how we know what the Port of Miami is doing. <laughs> I, I saw a tweet. Yeah, there you go. We saw a tweet. I, I read the story uh, and I don't oh. remember the number. So congratulations. Your your brain works way better You're on Twitter than mine. <laughs> issues with media today. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but they put out 1.4 billion and it was huge demand for, for, for a city in a port that is going underwater. Sinking. It will not be here in 50 to 100 years. They can't pay it back. And people are just clamoring up at the doors, climbing up, trying to get in. So I, I just, I think there's no return anywhere. I think everything looks great. And the question is, is that, is that the future for however long? Does that mean that venture capitalists basically go the way of the dodo and most of the work that venture capitalists used to do are essentially consultants now, which is actually how I see the world being that if VCs used to help with product, you just hire someone to help you with product now. You don't need your VC or investor to do that. They're, they're sort of outsourced. Are we at the peak of the hype cycle? We're coming back down to earth at some point, and we're going to figure out that this was a huge mess and a huge mistake for a lot of folks. Yeah, it took a long time to get here. I mean, think about how long interest rates were low after the 2008, 2009 financial crisis to end up in the asset bubble that we're currently in. I mean, think about the, the changes to housing prices in the last year. It's pretty abnormal. It's pretty distorted, I think we can say, based on historical patterns. 
the thing is, eventually money will get more expensive. Interest rates will go up and other bits of investing will have a higher return profile and it will diminish some appetite to put money into both crossover funds, private equity, and venture capital. So yes, there is an obvious eventual depressurization point. The issue is if interest rates go up, money gets more expensive, huzzah, and then the economy struggles, which <laughs> will eventually, they're going to cut interest rates again. And then we're going to be kind of back here. And so like, I, I don't want to say that there's no pop of the bubble coming, Natasha, but like, I, I don't see the catalyst from where I am today that could lead to such poppage. <laughs> poppage. <laughs> that's definitely a first for equity. I was like going to make such a serious point. but we. I, I think that's a new name for equity for a week. No. This is poppage. Poppage. I was going to say... I think like all of this, it feels like a healthy conversation that truly has been missing for the past few months. And I think we're beginning to talk about it doesn't mean I, I guess we don't need to come to an answer today or really ever until it happens. And I'm already seeing some of my friends who may be thinking of it on like kind of like a philosophical idea of like, just because we can doesn't mean we will anymore. I'm seeing that with my friends who are raising who choose not to raise. I'm seeing it from the people who could be emerging fund managers overnight through rolling funds, choosing to stay at their current firms. I don't think it indicates any lack of ambition. I just think it indicates a realization that this is a little bit bigger than just a few solo GPs proving that capital has appetite to go to new decision makers. To me, that means that we're getting to a healthier spot. I don't think we'll go zero to 100 or 100 to zero. I think we'll start to see people just start to question things a little more. And I feel like that's the job of all of us. So um, I'm not too scared about like a down coming immediately. I, I think what scares me, and this is always the problem with, with any sort of bubble, you know, going all the way back to tulips in, in, in the Netherlands, is it's all about expectations. And as soon as the expectations change and people don't think that things are going to the moon, they think they go to the ground. And, and that to me is like, you know, it's, <laughs> right. it, to me, it's like, it's not, okay, if some folks just start questioning, there is a little bit of an adopter cycle, right? There's some early people who are like, whoa, this is really warning. I think there's others who, you know, within very quick moments, you saw this in March with COVID, the market went down 30% in about 10 days, right? A third in a week and a half. If you People went on, forget. I went on vacation for 11 days. It is possible that I could have started my vacation, come back and a third of the economy disappeared overnight. That is not a resilient market. That is not a resilient price. That is not fundamental value. And that's what always kind of worries me about, you know, the future here is we're starting to see price points and revenues and multiples where it's hard to believe that at a hundred X forward multiple on some of these SaaS companies that like, there's only up from there. No, you've bought you've, you've you've bought all the upside for the next like five years, right? Here's why, though, from a founder perspective, that doesn't piss me off. Looking back through Slack's fundraising history, I just pulled up its Series E. It raised um, 173 million at a 2.6 pre-money valuation. That was back in 2015. By, by that point in time, Slack was pretty baked, right? Like it was kind of set. Like it was going to keep doing what it was doing. It had a great product. It had a hell of a great market fit. It was hot. It was obviously going to double and triple and quadruple in value. Why did VCs get to participate in so much upside from Slack's success that was already kind of figured out? So to me, like the prices that VCs now have to pay for startup growth, sure, they're excessive. I mean, they're a little high, no doubt about that. But it seems to be like the admission that for too long have private capital sources gotten away with underpaying for high performing assets. And so... And I know we'll have to bleep this, fuck them. You know, like, I mean, I, I don't feel that bad for VCs. Like, I, oh no, they're going to make slightly less money. But let's wrap by summarizing what we've discussed. Essentially, tons of money in the market, 
other money is coming in the startup world, crowding out some VCs, especially at the later stages. But the changes to the market do appear to be constrained a little bit to known business models and slightly later stage companies. This dynamic is uh, a facet of the modern world, but certainly not going to be the future for all time, given that the uh, business market will eventually turn. Uh, and that has been your Equity Econ 103 or whatever the hell. Uh, we are back Friday with our news roundup. You look tremendous. Goodbye. Goodbye.